I think if you can empower someone to access a space that they've felt marginalized from or excluded from, mm -hmm. I think that that can be really powerful. From UW Tacoma, this is Pot Defiance. Welcome to Pod Defiance, where we don't lecture, but we do educate. We're joined today by UW Tacoma Assistant Professor Ellen Bayer. Dr. Bayer teaches literature courses here at UWT. When she's not in the classroom, Dr. Bayer can usually be found outside. She's a nature enthusiast and also competes on ultra marathons. So today we have Ellen Bayer. Um, hi, Ellen Bayer. Would hi. you like to say a little bit more about yourself? So I'm Ellen Bear, and I'm an assistant professor at UW Tacoma. Um, I teach American literature, environmental literature, and nature writing are my kind of main areas of focus with teaching and with my research. Mm -hmm. And this is, um, let's see, this is my fifth year at UW Tacoma. And I, yeah, I love it in terms of stuff outside of teaching. I uh, am an ultra marathon runner. That's really kind of the core of my outside work activity. Um, yeah, but I also just love being being outside in the beautiful Northwest as much as possible. And uh, I'm also a bit of a cat lady. I have three cats at home. <laughs> <laughs> so you say you moved to Washington five years ago? I did. Where were the other places that you lived? So I've lived in Ohio, Indiana, and Kentucky. Uh, as a kid, I grew up in kind of suburban Ohio outside of Cincinnati and also in rural Indiana in a little town um, outside of a little town called Brookville. And then I went to college. I did my undergrad in Kentucky um, in two different places. One was in Lexington, Kentucky, where I was an equine science major. And then I also went to Northern Kentucky University, where I was a, an English major. So what brought you to Washington? Yeah, so I had a job outside of grad school at DePaul University in Indiana. That was my first job, but it wasn't tenure track. So I was always on the lookout for a tenure track position. And when I applied to UW Tacoma, I was a finalist at um, three other universities, and Tacoma was just the best fit for me. And so that brought me out here. Uh, drove cross country with, at that time, four cats in the car, and probably four cats. Yeah. On, and <laughs> drove across the country from Indiana to Washington. Yeah. So so far, have you enjoyed Washington? Yeah, I mean, I love everything about Washington. Um, it's, you know, as we talked about in the car, I love that you can be by the water, you can be up in the mountains, you can be in a forest, you can be on a glacier. I mean, there's so many different ecosystems here. And coming from the Midwest, which, you know, it has its own certain kind of beauty to it, for sure, I don't want to dismiss the the landscape of the, the Midwest. Out here, you know, we have mountains and you know, you can see whales and I can run along Ruston Way and see seals. And it's just for someone who grew up in the landlocked cornfields of the Midwest, <laughs> it's just really exciting. So I love the outdoors here. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's so many other things to love about the Northwest. But for me, that's what really makes it feel like home. So what did you get your PhD in and why? My PhD is actually in American literature, 19th century American literature, and my focus area in grad school was in intersections between literature and the arts. And so when I was 
already started on my dissertation. I took, I just decided to audit a class on eco-criticism and environmental literature just because I was curious about it. It was kind of a new and emerging field and I loved it so much. But at that point, I was already starting my dissertation and it was too late to do something mm-hmm. different. And so uh, it's just a, basically a field that I have more or less learned on my own in my spare time uh, building a foundation in eco-criticism and environmental literature and nature writing um, that I've basically built my pedagogy and my research now on, uh, even though my degree isn't necessarily in that. Yeah. So you said research right now. Can mm-hmm. you explain about the research part? Is it, is, it, is it something that you're studying or you're already working on right now? Yep. So I have a lot of different projects that I've worked on since I've been at UW-Tacoma Um, And a lot of them are influenced by looking at how um, environmental concerns overlap with literary texts. Mm -hmm. And so one example is looking at how in the 19th century um, literary texts, including I look a lot at Edgar Allan Poe's writing, Mm -hmm. and I look at how these literary texts were promoting Um, what type of plants people should put in their gardens and on their property and looking at how people were making choices based on the aesthetic of it and because it was what they deemed beautiful as opposed to maybe what would do well in that environment. What was needed actually. Yeah. Yeah. And so it ends up bringing about a lot of environmental problems and having these broader consequences because people were choosing things because they're pretty and not because it's a good fit for the Mm -hmm. landscape. And so looking at how literary texts and environmental concerns overlap um, in people's choices, and we still see that today. You know, if you look around town, you'll see English ivy over all the trees and overtaking people's yards and houses and fences, and all of that was was brought here. And it's you know in the the rainforest on the Olympic Peninsula, it's killing trees. Yeah, um, and it's here because you know people thought it'd be pretty to have it'd in their yard. To have them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So going back to you as a professor. Mm-hmm. You teach classes and UW Tacoma. What are some of the things that you teach and how do you, you know, structure your teaching? Okay. So I teach a lot of classes that deal with nature writing and environmental literature. And that's really, I mean, my, my real mm-hmm. passion and what I love to teach. And so I will um, offer twice a year, I offer like just an introductory nature writing class. And so we'll read environmental literature and nature writing texts. And we'll also listen to um, a podcast that's based out of Tacoma called Boldly Went. It's an outdoor adventure storytelling Storytelling podcast. And so my students are learning kind of the genre. They're learning about the different types of ways people experience the outdoors. And then for their final project, they have to develop their own story about an outdoor adventure. And so their final project, part of their assignment is they have to have an outdoor adventure of some sort. And so (laughs) they do all kinds of different things. And some of them, a lot of them actually have maybe never even been on a hike before. And so it's the first opportunity to do something like that or maybe go camping for the first time or go kayaking for the first time or go out on a trail by themselves for the first time. So it's a great opportunity for students to connect to nature and have a really impactful experience and um, challenge themselves to try something new. And then they also then have a story to tell. And so that 
that in that class, we have a storytelling event at the end of the quarter, and I'm working with Boldly Went to create a space on their website for student stories to be featured. Um, so I try to do stuff like that in all my classes. So in my wilderness memoir class, we read books, you know, memoirs by authors who have gone out into the wilderness, and then my students as you might imagine, have to go have a wilderness experience. And they get to define the parameters of that. What you know, They can kind of determine what wilderness means to them. And then they come back and they share and document that project in some way. And so they've done it in all kinds of ways, whether that's been in paintings or some people have done music or film or poetry, short stories. They've done a whole variety of kind of creative ways of documenting that experience. And so... I would say that those are kind of the cornerstones of my courses. They always involve some type of experiential component Mm -hmm. and then reporting back in a creative way. Do you think this way it's more effective? The way you're teaching is like, you know, they have to go outside and do a little bit of exploring rather than just being in classroom and getting lectured about some environmental stuff. Do you think this way is more effective? Yeah, I mean, well, I think that's an interesting question. And, you know, um, if we think about what effective means, right? And so I think what it helps students do is it helps them. um, I I try to provide a lot of resources because a lot of our students just don't have access to the outdoors Mm -hmm. and they maybe don't have the resources to access them. And so I think um, it empowers students to reach into an area where maybe they felt excluded from in the past. Maybe mm-hmm. they felt like they didn't belong outside or didn't have time for it or kind of scared of it. And so I think if you can empower someone to access a space that they've felt marginalized from or excluded from, mm-hmm. I think that that can be really powerful. Um, I think also, you know, we read about people going out and doing these exciting adventures and it I think it reinforces for students, like, it doesn't have to just be somebody else in the book. It can be them, too. Yeah. And when they come back and they tell their story, they get to realize that, like, their story matters, their voice matters, and there's a space for it. And so I think those things can be really impactful. And so that's why I don't have students write a research paper at the end of the quarter. I feel, from my perspective, what I want them to take away is something a little bit different mm-hmm. than that particular skill. And so I don't know if it's more effective. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't yeah. know if it's more effective than a more traditional approach, but I think it has some really impactful outcomes. And I see students going out and continue continuing to engage. In Even the, after class, yeah. Yeah, so I have a group of students who just started the Outdoor Adventure Club. So it's a wow. uh, registered student organization. And their whole kind of mission is to get other students involved in getting outside mm-hmm. and to help make that possible. And those things that the teaching part kind of aligns with my, my research where it's going, um, two things I want to do is, one, I want to study... I want to study any correlations there might be between someone having a firsthand personal experience in nature and possibly them be more invested in issues of sustainability Mm -hmm. and addressing the environmental crisis. And so that's a research project that's emerging out of this. The other component that's emerging out of it is I want to develop um, a gear lending library because, you know, a lot of students maybe don't have 
tents or snowshoes or even yeah, hiking boots, the right? Because so, they're they're costly a little bit, you know. Some, for some students, they're yeah. not able to afford those resources. Exactly, and those tools. it can be. And so, if we have a gear lending library on Canva, campus where students can come check out a tent for the weekend or you know hiking shoes for a day, you know whatever type of resources they might need. Um, I think that that would be such a great asset, especially if even the broader Tacoma community could participate in that as well. And so for me, it's about trying to open up access to more people and helping to facilitate that and also then trying to track what the outcomes of that might be. Mm -hmm. I can actually resonate a little bit with what you said earlier, how like, you know, like a lot of students weren't they never went hiking or they never went camping or anything like that, being outside doors. And for me, that happened as well. Actually, like, I think it was a couple years ago. It was my first time going camping. I've never been outside. And it was just, like, an amazing experience. Yeah. And I went with my family. So it was really fun. And I was when you said that, I was like, oh, that's me too, you know. Like, yeah. I felt that. That's great. This all came from my very first environmental literature course that I taught my first year here. And, um, you know, from from campus, from some of the buildings, you can see the mountain there, mm-hmm. right? And she pointed to it, the student in class, and she said, I've looked at that mountain every day of my life, and I've never been to it. I've never been able wow. to go touch it. And it was just so heartbreaking to me to hear that, to think about that you see this thing. It has a, such a huge presence in your everyday life, and yet you've never had the opportunity to go touch it. And she had children. She was a single mom. She was working full time, going to school full time. Mm-hmm. And she just felt like she just didn't have the means or the time to go access mm-hmm. it. And so she decided like this, this was going to be a mission for her was to get to the mountain. And I knew in that moment that that was going to shape my, my time at UW Tacoma was going to try and change that. So yeah. it came from hearing, yeah, hearing that from students. Yeah, because I mean, like a lot of places, they're even though like you, some places do charge, and then I know like some places like you just don't know how how to go. You know, like where is it first of all? Where do I park? Can I? You know, like those little questions that you might be like, oh, they're like silly questions, but they're like actually, where do I start? Where do I go first? Can I park here? Can I go camping that way? You know, because you're just kind of afraid that you might get like you know a ticket or something for it. Exactly. Just not familiar with the spaces. Yeah. And so, you know, one thing that I try to do is I'll do an optional excursion for the class. And so um, last fall, I got a grant from the Center for Leadership and Social Responsibility, and they funded a trip to Mount Rainier National Park for my students. And, you know, just so that they could kind of learn, like, here's the logistics of trip planning, and here's the maps that we'll be using, Mm -hmm. and, you know, here's the resources that are available and just modeling it for students who have the same questions, you know. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, you actually you got funded and everything, so they wouldn't really have to worry about the you know the costs or anything like that. Yeah, it was the grant was great. So the park gave us um, a waiver for the entrance fee. So Mount Rainier National Park funded mm-hmm. that for us, and then the other grant funded transportation, so we could all just get rent rental vehicles. And go up together instead of students having to try and figure out transportation. Mm-hmm. Hey everyone, it's Maria. We're talking a lot in this episode about being outside. If you're on campus, why not take a walk to the UW Tacoma Given Garden? The garden is located at the edge on campus on 21st Street and Fawcett. Here you'll find garden beds, fruit trees, and a native plant walk. 
This is a great place to take in some nature while still in the city. Also, much of the food grown at the given garden goes to students through the university on-campus food bank, the pantry. So on the next sunny day, why not grab your books and head to the given garden to do some studying? So is there a reason why you're so passionate about environmental studies? Is there like, you know, like, are you, did you always grow up loving nature or was there just like a transition out of nowhere? Yeah, that's good for me to try and articulate that. And um, I guess I would say that as a kid, um, my, my parents divorced when I was pretty young. And so my dad moved to a farm in rural Indiana. And my brother and I would just spend our days like playing in the creek mm-hmm. and in the woods and just kind of running around and living this really kind of in, almost enchanted childhood of like being wild children in the, in the forest. Mm-hmm. And so I always felt connected to the outdoors. Um, and, you know, we would go hiking and car camping and things like that. But I, it wasn't until I really came to Washington that I started doing lots of kind of more extreme outdoor adventures and getting out into the backcountry and doing wild camping and, and and just broadening my relationship to the natural world. And I'm really happier sleeping in a tent in the <laughs> woods than I am anywhere else or running along a ridge in the mountains. And so I think on a personal level, it's connected me to the, I just feel very connected to the natural world. It's just my my place that I feel like my my best self. But the other component is also coming from you know an awareness and concern for the environmental crisis that is facing us on a global yeah. level. And so um, I think that's also where my my research also plays into that passion. These are places that are threatened by human mm-hmm. activity and they're changing based on human activity and you know there's a lot of other species that are implicated in in that that you know besides humans mm-hmm. and so i feel like um there's a personal connection but there's also just as a global citizen um a real sense of responsibility yeah. for trying to do what i can as an individual to acknowledge and address those broader concerns would you say that's the same reason why you started doing ultra marathons because i heard you you know you do ultra marathons so i think i never imagined that i would be a runner much less an ultra marathon runner um because it wasn't something i did when i was younger i didn't mm-hmm. run track or cross country in school running like around my block would wind me and so <laughs> when i was um in my mid-30s, a friend invited me to do a race, and it was just five and a half miles, but I trained really hard, and it was really difficult. But when I was out on the course, I was running across, um, it's the Mackinac Bridge in Michigan, which um, spans two of the Great Lakes, and the sun was coming up over the lakes, and mm-hmm. I'm just running, and the air was so crisp, and I just, in that moment, was like, wow, I really love this. And, you know, shortly thereafter, when I moved to Washington, a friend took me running at Point Defiance on the trails. And I just thought, like, oh, my gosh, what is this? I'm missing out. <laughs> yeah. And so I started running half marathons and on trails, and I just loved it. So then I decided to train for a marathon. Mm-hmm. And um, 
two weeks before my first marathon, I broke my ankle and was very frustrated. And so while I was, you know, laid up on the couch in a cast recovering, I was just looking at, well, like, well, what else is there besides marathons? And that's when I started reading about ultra marathons. And there's one in Washington called White River 50 Miler. And um, I was like, I want to run that. And so (laughs) after I healed up, everything was moving toward running the 50 miler. And I remember, you know, the first time I ran, you know, 20 miles, I just had this like very mm-hmm. moving experience of like, I can't believe my legs have carried me this far. This far yeah. And so I think from there, I just grew to love those long distances and training, you know, going out on trails and running for, you know, spending half your day just out there running around in the woods. Um, I don't listen to music or anything. I just kind of let myself get lost in the in the woods, mm-hmm. um, you know, mentally speaking, not necessarily <laughs> not actually getting not lost. Actually getting lost. <laughs> yeah. And um, it just, I just found something, you know, in my essentially late 30s kind of found my calling and that was running long distances through the, through the mountains. And it, it's just, it's empowering to be able to pick up something you know, at a point in your life where you kind of thought your ways had been set and you'd been mm-hmm. on this trajectory and there there really wasn't anything else and um, that I could be good at something and that I could fall in love with something and be so just, I don't know, completed by mm-hmm. it. It was a, It's been a great experience. And so it's central to me now. Yeah. So how did you prepare to do all that? <laughs> because, I mean, that's a lot of running. So yeah. I'm, I'm assuming you prepared yourself pretty well. How was that process? Yeah. So to prepare for the 50 miler, you know, I would, um, you know, essentially like run mileage throughout the week and then on the weekends do longer runs and each weekend kind of add a little bit more mileage. And I ran a marathon and a um, a 50K to prepare for that. Mm-hmm. And then after I did the 50 miler, I just was so like, I just was like, oh, this is it. But I kind of want to do a 100 miler. <laughs> and so from there, I ran more 50 milers and more 50Ks um, just to kind of get used to those longer distances. And then I ran a 100K. Um, I think my, so that's 61 miles. And, you know, I'd have weekends where I'd run like back to back 15 milers or 20 milers. So it is a lot of training, you know, training, it is a lot of training. Yeah. Um, but for me, it was, I have a tendency to work myself, you know, I will just keep working because it feels like it can never get finished. And so it was actually really good for me to have this reason to put work down and get outside and make time for myself. Mm -hmm. And so it ended up becoming really therapeutic in a way um, to just have a a reason to like stop what I'm doing because I have to get some miles Mm -hmm. in. Was there ever any like moments where when you were running that you were like, okay, I can't do this or like moments (laughs) of doubt or you were like, I just need to give up? Did you have any moments like that? Yeah, I think think you go through a lot of emotions when you're Mm -hmm. running a long distance. Um, And so during my first 100 miler, you know, I went down to that race. It was in um, Bryce Canyon in Utah. And I went down there thinking, like, I trained so hard, like, I'm gonna be in the top 10, or maybe I'll be in the top three, or maybe I'll set a course record. You know, I was so... I was, I just felt so confident going yeah. in and I ended up about 20 miles in having some serious physical problems, <laughs> um, some, you know, 
uh, I'll spare your listeners, but things went really far south. And um, I think the hard thing was, was revising my expectations, mm-hmm. you know. It was very difficult for me to accept that I was not going to have the spectacular race that I thought I would. In fact, I got to the point where I wasn't even able to run. Um, 20 miles into my first 100-miler, I was essentially walking. Uh, And um, so that was a lot of time to be in my own head thinking Mm -hmm. about, like, this isn't going right. I'm better than this. I trained so hard. This isn't fair. You know, all this kind of these, these bad emotions. And so the tough part was trying to acknowledge that things were what they were and putting that aside and then just focusing on finishing. And mm-hmm. that became important to me just to finish the distance. And maybe I'm just stubborn and, <laughs> you know, like other people probably would have just said like, this is silly. I'm going to stop. But for me, um, it was important to be able to finish and um, to not dwell on the race I wasn't having and to just be grateful for the fact that I was still, moving through the world by my own power and um, in a beautiful place. And that's a privilege. And so I had to remind myself that not everyone is that privileged. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, one example, I met so many people along the way through that experience. And uh, one runner stopped. Um, at one point, I basically um, missed the cutoff. Um, okay. So typically, they would pull you out of a race if you miss a cutoff. So I had made it, I think, 80, 86 miles or so. And then missed the cutoff. And when I came to that realization, you know, I again started to feel sorry for myself. And another runner um, who he was running the 50 mile race. So they started after us. He stopped by me and asked, you know, do I do you need water? Do you want me to walk in with you? What's going on? And um, I just just started crying and said, like, you know, my race is over and I'm just coming to terms with that. And this guy just lunged at me and like gave me this bear hug Mm -hmm. that was just so powerful and he whispered in my ear that everything was going to be okay and everything happened for a reason and I stopped crying and thanked him and he he ran off and I saw on his back that he had a bib that said um, legally blind and I just thought you know like it was just this wake-up moment where it was like you know what I'm not legally blind like I'm not you know I'm not disabled in any way like I am capable of still moving through this space in a way that's very privileged and it was just a it was a very very important moment for me to realize like even though that day didn't go as I had hoped Mm -hmm. um, or two days as it turned into um, it was still a very much a privilege to be there and be able to do what I did how long does it usually take you to run (laughs) (laughs) yeah I'm like I'm okay it takes me like at least 20 minutes <laughs> to run one mile, maybe more than that. Oh, I bet you're faster than that. You said you were fast. So, <laughs> so like you're doing, you're doing 100 miles. So is that, I'm assuming those are days. <laughs> yeah. So it depends a lot on the course. Mm-hmm. Um, so that particular course was at altitude and it was in, it was very hot. So it was, you know, triple digit weather. Um, and so a lot of people from what I learned quit halfway through the first day because the conditions were so bad. So when you factor that in, um, a lot of people were running, like the people who were in the top 10 were running that race in like 24 to 27 hours, I would say. Um, I think a lot of mountain hundred milers, maybe, you know, people kind of fall in that range because you're 
at elevation, mm-hmm. you're climbing a lot, you know, the conditions are really yeah. pretty extreme. There are some hundred milers that have less elevation gain and maybe better temperature conditions. And, you know, I think people can run those in like 13, 14 hours, which wow. is insane. I will never <laughs> be able to do that. Yeah. Um, Bryce Canyon took me almost 43 hours, which was... Um, so you were running during the, during the night? Two nights. Two yeah. nights. Yeah, actually two nights. <laughs> yeah, because even though I missed the cutoff, I kept going because I was determined to just finish. Were you ever scared to be running <laughs> like at night? No, I think I was worried about that um, in the past. Like I grew up afraid of the dark, mm-hmm. even as probably older than I would like to admit, afraid of you know being out yeah. in the woods by myself in the dark. But that's something that ultra running has helped me conquer is that fear of being alone in the mm-hmm. woods at night. And so I think, especially when uh, there's so many other things going wrong with your race, and if you're fixated on that, you're not worried about being out um, at night. But on the other hand, it can be pretty incredible. I mean, I remember just seeing so many stars and without the all the light pollution, you see them in a way that you don't see it like here in the city. Mm-hmm. And so... That can be just incredible too, and you hear sounds that you don't hear during the day, and um, you know you know that there are other people out there. You know they're just not necessarily you with don't you, see them. <laughs> uh, and that can be it's a, just a very different way to experience the the world and to experience nature. So I've grown to really like it. Mm-hmm. So going back to you as a professor, okay. Um, is that some of, some of the things that students have shared with you as well that, you know, gave them more confidence to be outside? Or what are some of the things that, you, that students have shared with you or during, you know, the classes that they've taken with you? Yeah, well, um, even just last fall, I had a student who um, started hiking more regularly, pretty much once a week. Mm-hmm. Um, they started hiking and really grew to love it and found a community to do it with. And the last time I spoke with her, she was signing up for a glacier travel class and she was going to summit Mount Baker, you know, and so that's a pretty extreme mm-hmm. example, right? But I, I, last summer, we went sea kayaking off on Thea Foss Waterway in my wilderness memoir class, my summer class, and I had a student who was afraid of the water. And so I told her, okay, you don't have to, you don't have to go in the kayak if you mm-hmm. don't want to. I'm not going to force you to do something. But it's there, and here's the ways it's safe, and here's the ways we can kind of mitigate any risk. And so she decided to do it. And at one point, um, we were out in the bay kind of at that point, and I looked over at her, and she was asleep in her kayak because she was so at ease Mm -hmm. and happy to be out on the water that she decided she was just going to take a nap in her kayak, you know. (laughs) And so to me, that's a pretty Mm -hmm. um, incredible thing to overcome. and. I'll just I'll tell you one more example. I think these are kind of representative. You know, I had one student who um, he hadn't really been on a hike before and decided to go with some friends. This was during a winter class, and he wore sweatpants and gym shoes and like stuff that you would not wear to be out in the snow yeah. hiking, right? Mm-hmm. But he just didn't realize it, and so he tried to get to this lake, and he realized he was just so out of shape that it was. He, he wasn't going to make it, and his sweatpants, which are cotton and holding all that water, was making him cold. Extra and so heavy as well. And yeah. heavy, and so it was just a really kind of defeating experience. And so he realized, you know what? As a student at UW Tacoma, I have a, um, a membership to the Y, and he's like, I'm going to start going to the Y, and I'm going to get in shape, and then I'm going to go back and do that hike. And when he gave his presentation— 
um, at the end of it, he he pointed out, he's like, and I'm wearing the sweatpants that I wore that day. And he pulled out the waistband and he had dropped so much weight and gotten wow. so toned and fit from, you know, going to the gym. And he felt so good about himself mm-hmm. for being motivated to to make fitness a part of his life. And he hadn't gone back to go on that hike again, but I'm sure that he, you know, that that was definitely going to happen. And so just seeing the different ways that students have engaged with that experience and then moved, for, moved forward with that as part of their life, mm-hmm. um, for me, like that just... That makes me want to keep doing this. I, I think that you could even use that as your research already. <laughs> like, Because, I mean, part of your research, if I'm not wrong, um, you said that you want to kind of like, you know, like share those experiences, like students who are not even students, but just people in general that encounter nature the first time and how that, you know, affects whether they are more, um, you know, whether they care more about nature or yeah. like any sustainable issues. And I just feel like that is already an impact within your research. And yeah, kind of relates to it a bit. Yeah, thanks for <laughs> for seeing that. I think the the thing is that right now that's just my own observations, right? And so what I want my work to start to move toward is gathering data that can quantify mm-hmm. this. And I don't have a background in that. So once again, I will be kind of teaching myself a new field. But that's part of my next project is trying to collaborate with others who do understand how to develop survey questions and things like that mm-hmm. so that I can gather some data that is going to be more um, – it's just going to offer a different picture than my personal observations mm-hmm. have. You know, my personal observations give me the, the enough evidence, I think, to move forward with trying to find some mm-hmm. some harder evidence. Yeah. Yeah, that, that would be really great. Like, I would actually want to learn more about that as well. Because it's really interesting. Like, I told you earlier, I can resonate with a lot of the things that you said. And I was just thinking that students like myself, who are also listening to the podcast, you know, like, they're going to be like, hey, I can actually do these things as well. Or I can take a class, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. come take my class. So where, where can they find you? You know, like, is there, do you have any office hours? Any students that might want to know more about you? Yeah, so um, I definitely have office hours. I hold them in the Teaching and Learning Center in the TLC because that's where students hang out. So that's where mm-hmm. I go for office hours. This quarter, they are Monday and Wednesday from noon to 1 p.m. But I also do things by appointment. So if that doesn't work for a student's schedule, I can, you know, they can just reach out to me. Um, my email is E-B-A-Y-E-R-0-5 <laughs> at uw.edu. And so if they send me an email with some suggestions for times that work for them we can work something out that would be very great yeah well thanks for coming to the podcast yeah thanks for having me yeah like i'm really like excited about everything (laughs) that you're doing and i've actually got got me motivated to do you know start training for something too yeah it's exciting to do something outside thank you so much yeah thank you Thank you to our guests, and a big thank you to our senior lecturer, Nicole Blair, for letting us play your music on the show. Thank you to Moon Yard Recording Studio, and thank you for joining us today. <laughs>